and welcome to They Just Get It. My name is Tyler Chisholm, and I'm excited, as I often have accused of being, of uh, talking with my guest today, Mr. Chris Newell. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I am, I am really good. This beautiful sun, sunny morning we're having, getting a little summer weather. Um, Chris is the director of retail development at Westleaf. Let's just start there. Tell us a little bit about Westleaf, give, set the stage for the audience, and we'll get into a little bit of your story. So Westleaf is a vertically integrated cannabis company, uh, which means we own um, assets along the entire value chain. Um, we have cultivation uh, that we're building on Battleford, Saskatchewan, as well as a manufacturing extraction facility here in Calgary. And then uh, we have a, a retail portfolio of different real estate across the, the Western provinces. So we have three stores operating in Saskatoon right now. Oh, sorry, two in Saskatoon, one in Warman, so three in Saskatchewan, along with an uh, e-commerce site. Okay. And then our first store in Alberta is opening in Forest Lawn uh, in the few, next few weeks here. Oh, congratulations. I saw that post the other day, and that's a... And how many... What, um, Westleaf has a series of sub-brands underneath Westleaf, correct? So, yeah. So, Westleaf is the parent company, Westleaf Inc. We're publicly traded. Yes. And then Prairie Records is actually the retail banner uh, that we operate all the retail stores under, which kind of uh, celebrates the instinctual tie between music and cannabis, Everyone can kind of relate to listening to some music while they're maybe smoking a joint or hitting a bong or doing something like that. Yes, so for sure. There's that kind of a, an instinctual tie. And then we also have uh, other brands that are being developed. So we have like Loon, which is our nutraceutical brand. Um, oh, interesting. Products. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And there will be a number of other produced products that are coming out. We have uh, General Admission and Backstage, which are uh, some other banners. We're going to be producing products. Excellent. So you guys kind of got that, that house of brands, essentially, a bunch of different ones tying in to really tie to different markets. Yeah, yeah, different different markets, different products, and just really, you know, one of the things that's great about the recreational cannabis market is that it's bringing to light how many different strains there are, uh, and how many, and what the differences are between those products. And so we're really trying to create brands that'll kind of celebrate those differences and give people, you know, options depending on what they're doing. It's interesting. We talked a little bit offline today, and you know, kind of grow, I grew up in back east, and I grew up in Montreal, and everybody smoked joints, and everybody, you know, grew weed in their back forty, like it's kind of the way it was. And I kind of grew out of it, quote unquote, because I'm like, ah, oh, that's done. But this this whole revolution of the different products and the different health benefits, and how it's becoming a lot more mainstream and less about, I, okay, I got a guy, and don't worry, he told me it was good, and it's actually moving into a trusted environment. I think we haven't even really seen the impact of the change. I think that it's going to come from it as as that adoption and people get more comfortable. For sure, I think it's just really decreasing. The- that negative stigma. Um, it's been really interesting because, like you said, a lot of people move away from cannabis before, and it was always like you know the one person whose friend doesn't want them to do it, so they don't do it. And then the circle becomes smaller as there's people start going outside. Whereas now I see it moving the opposite way, where you know people are very you know happy to go out for a drink, um, and now yes. I see that people are you know saying, oh yeah, let's go for a joint. You know, do you want to go to the store and you know, try this new cannabis I had. It was great. And, you know, you sit down and you share that rather than going and having a couple of beverages. I'm noticing the word of mouth. I got some buddies of like, hey, I got this really helps me sleep or oh, this gives me good energy. I had some aches and pains. This really helped it. You're starting to get that word of mouth, kind of your buddy referral, like that, yeah. that, that, that your circle of influence. And it's not just like, hey, it was great. I got a good buzz off it. It's all the other benefits that I'm seeing starting to show up just in, just in conversations. Like when you sit around with your buddies having a beer, yeah. <laughs> which is like just the thing to do. Yeah. And someone's like, oh, I got this new spray or I found this new, or whatever the case may be. It's, it's interesting how it's shifting i find very quickly mm-hmm. yeah i mean the interesting thing about the recreational market is obviously you know we can't talk about the medicinal benefits yes. uh, but you know people know exactly what they're looking for when it comes to you know what's ailing them they want sleep they want to relax they have a hard time unwinding they have anxiety so when you have those kinds of things, you can speak to those effects without speaking specifically about the medical yes. Uh, benefits. Yes, and the joy of we all have the internet, so we can all we're all yeah. we're all educated, good or bad. We can go out and find and find information. For sure. So, just as a comparison, like, is there any other um, in the size and the scope and the space that you guys are in as Westleaf? Who other? Because there's lots of you know, there's the Afrias and the Canopies. There's lots of the, the companies that get more. I know those are on the licensed producer side. Get a lot more media. Who else is in kind of the same game with you guys? Is there other brands that people would recognize just to kind of create a comparison? Um, I'd, I'd say it kind of depends on which vertical. Um, we're one of the, the few vertic- vertically integrated cannabis companies. Obviously, there's you know a lot of licensed producers that people are really familiar with. Canopy, they Aurora. Get, they get all the media. Yeah. They get the media. Um, on the extraction side, Valens uh, is, is one of the pure play extractors. Then you have the pure play retailers. Um, speaking specifically here in Alberta, Fire and Flower is pretty big. Yes. Canna Cabana. So there's a number of other retailers. Um, 
there's just a lot of people that are trying to take advantage of the opportunity with this new industry. And then, you know, we talked a little bit about line. If something like this comes along, how many different ways you can look at it and all, sure. the, and all the things that it takes to actually make it successful for, the, for that consumer to be able to walk into that store and have a good experience from the packaging guys to the guys growing to like literally the whole chain of events. And I'm really excited over the next few years how it improves. So anyways, I'm showing my hand here a little bit. I'm two, two, I had two agendas having you on. One, I think you have a really cool story. I think this is also, I think there's a lot of people out there that, you know, we see media and we see the store shop pop up in the corner, but we don't really know a lot about it yet. So that was kind of one of my agendas is to really talk about the industry and maybe what goes on behind the scenes that everyone isn't just making wheelbarrows of money. I know that sometimes I'm like, oh my God, I'm really missed out. And oh my God, these buddies that are all now they're retired. And, but I've heard some other stories of people that didn't work out that way. Either. Yeah. So maybe we'll touch on that. So how, let's, let's talk about you. How did you find your way into being a, a cannabis guy? <laughs> Um, so it, it kind of just came about. Uh, I have a retail background. Uh, I worked at uh, as a partner in the Popeye supplement stores here in Calgary. So okay. I spent uh, about seven and a half years um, helping to build that business with my partners and opening um, five stores here in the Calgary nice. area. How many locations? Because I know Popeyes. I know from the Cloud Trail down here. But how many locations do they have in Alberta? Uh, in Alberta, so it's the way that it's done. It's done as as licensees. Oh, so, okay, okay. Yeah, I so I, I was responsible for the the Calgary and Red, and Red Deer territories. Um, there's different people that own in kind of the smaller towns, Medicine Hat, Lethbridge. Oh, and okay, okay. I didn't I know their business model. Yeah, and there's a couple different owners in Edmonton. Uh, I think all in all, there's about. 140 plus stores across Canada now. Uh, okay, okay. For some reason I just had it as an Alberta thing in my mind. So okay, yeah, no, it's 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 Canada wide. It is. It did start in Alberta. Uh, started. Okay, in, so that's good. Okay, well, yeah. Alberta pride. Okay, yeah. awesome. Okay. Uh, and the 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 McLeod Trail store you actually uh, you mentioned was actually the third store in the company. Um, okay. So before it kind of went to the licensee model and started to kind of grow, that was kind of the the third store in the company too in Edmonton. One nice and 140 location. That's a good success story. And so yeah, it started yeah. in Edmonton. Yeah. So it was really interesting uh, being a part of that company for so long seeing the growth and actually a lot of uh, similarities between this and the cannabis industry. I can imagine. Um, you know, obviously retail is retail, but uh, dealing with, you know, highly regulated product supplements, you have Health Canada, NPN numbers, there's a lot of controls uh, around what people are ingesting. Very similar um, to uh, how the way Health Canada is treating recreational cannabis right now. So that very, was, that was kind of a seamless transition for me. And then, you know, in my role... So basically the way it worked out was uh, I was with Popeyes for about seven and a half years and started doing my MBA about uh, six and a half years in. Knew that I wanted to transition out of small business, try and get some new opportunities, new challenges. Okay. And um, in, I'd say, April of 2018, I started having some conversations with the guys from Westleaf. Um, they I love had, how new this industry is, like April 2018. <laughs> so literally a couple days ago. Yeah, literally, like not that long ago. Um <laughs> And so I just had some conversations with them. Originally, Westleaf had started out as a pure play cultivation. And they had, uh, you know, pivoted into the vertical integration strategy. And so uh, I sat down with some of the executives there to kind of just hear about what they were doing. It wasn't even specifically about a job, just kind of looking at, you know, their retail concept, Prairie Records, and what their plans were for it. Um, and over a couple of months and a couple of different conversations, we kind of, it evolved to, you know, potentially the opportunity to work together. And so I had planned on taking the summer off. I had planned on kind of, you know, stepping away and just, you know, getting some time to decide which direction I want to go. Um, I finished with Popeyes on a Friday in June. And like you said, literally on Monday, I got the call from Westleaf. So wasn't even unemployed for one business day. That's awesome. Yeah. And when the opportunity comes knocking and, and literally it's, that's been a fast paced opportunity. Oh yeah, for sure. It's, I mean, it's, I saw the industry and how fast it was going to be moving. And I really saw what they were doing at Westleaf. Um, you know, the CEO and CFO, Scott, uh, Scott Hurd and Taylor Ethans, they built an amazing team around them. Uh, we have a number of executives that have come up from uh, from Denver, actually, they were involved with MR Dean, mm -hmm. um, and basically had grown more uh, more legal cannabis than anybody else in the world. MR Dean had at that point in time, and then they started their own company. So we have a, a lot of really good, experienced um, people with experience in cannabis companies that are already with Westleaf. And so having that experience behind you is, I just saw an opportunity to work with some people that, you know. Uh, are really smart and really know what they're doing and can kind of really get an edge on the industry. Well, and it's so hard to find people that have had experience in an industry that's brand new. So for you guys to be able to bring in people from the outside who've kind of gone through and as one of my buddies in business, there's always somebody who stepped on that landmine before you step on it. Yeah. So if you they can point it out and you can walk around it, that's a good strategy. <laughs> those sure. are good people on your team. Yeah. How did you end up at Popeyes? Did you, like, again, I always joke, I, the joke I always make, like, so when you sat with your guidance counselor, they said, you know what? You're best selected for the cannabis industry. <laughs> so <laughs> No one I've met with is ever been the path <laughs> yeah I, I probably have a very unconventional path um i actually i started at popeye's part-time because i got tired of working in the restaurant industry 
Okay. Uh, so I, I worked, uh, I worked it's a shared the, background you and I have, yeah. yeah. Slinging drinks, working behind the bar. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, you know, growing up in Calgary, a lot of people, uh, out of high school, it was pretty much, you either go into engineering or you go into business, yep. right? Oil and gas was basically the center of the universe. And so that's where you're going to ultimately going to end up. So I had, uh, I had gone to university for, for a year and then basically decided that I, that wasn't what I wanted to do. Went to SATE, uh, took production accounting okay. and ended up working in oil and gas for a little while. Didn't really enjoy it myself, so I decided to go soul searching again. Worked at a golf course because I love to play golf, and and of course I worked there as a bartender. And then yeah, being in the bar industry, decided to go back to university. And then while I was there, just found that you know the hours weren't really conducive to the lifestyle that I wanted. Staying up till three, four o'clock in the morning. Yeah, when everyone else is on holidays, you're working. Like exactly. yeah, that, that does get is a great like money for time kind of rea- reality oh, when you're sure. in school when you're doing something else. I did I went through flight school doing the same thing. Yep. But then the day that it's done, it is like I could not get out of it fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So doing that and then basically. Uh, you know, saw an opportunity with Popeyes. We got really got into kind of working out and just kind of focusing on on health and fitness. And I love how you follow your passions. Yeah, I'm I'm seeing a theme kind of weaving through some of this. I'd, production you know, accounting, not super passionate about it. Not my thing. I'm going to move on. I would say I would say production accounting is actually the catalyst to that because it basically it was a decision, right? It was a career that I know people have worked a lifetime yeah, doing absolutely. it. So I've kind of made the decision right then and there that it was like, you know, if, if it's not something I enjoy or not something I want to do, then why am I doing it? Yeah. And so that's why I went. It's nice when we can look back and you see those moments where you, sure. or if you went left, one thing would happen, but you went right and something else happened. Yeah. And you don't even, and not even knowing what that something else is at the time can be challenging. Yeah, no, for sure. You, you don't, you don't necessarily acknowledge it or realize what it is when it's right there in front of you. But <laughs> totally. luckily I was able how old, to. How old were you at the time? Um, I would have been 22. That's what I, so I assumed those times when you should be making life decisions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, you know, but you'd make the best decision available to what you know at the time. <laughs> yeah. And, and luckily I, I made the right one as, as far as I, I'm concerned. So I went back to school, university, started with Popeyes. And then originally when I joined the company there, they didn't have, every store was operating independently. Okay. And so, you know, myself, I was, I was luckily in business school and I come from, you know, some really well-run companies. I worked at McDonald's when I was in high school. I worked at all the restaurants, Cactus Club, Earl's. So you saw I, some well-oiled machines. I saw some well-oiled machines. And I, I figured saw, Earl's was in the mix somewhere along. Oh the yeah, line. yeah, yeah. I saw what systems can really do to help you know enable a business to be able to grow. And so I kind of you know took those learnings that I had, plus the education that I was going through, and kind of applied that to Popeyes, and um, you know took over one store at a time, and ultimately ended up being the regional manager, and then was offered a partnership. And by putting those systems in place, it enabled me to really help grow the business and enabled us to, you know, have every store operating independently. Um, but like a well-oiled machine yes. and running kind of the, you know, the same, the same speeches to the customers, having the same standard operating procedures and kind of really building that in so that, you know, whether you're at one store or another, they were operating the exact same. And it's the only way that if you go, okay, something's not working. If everyone's doing something different, it's impossible to fix it. Yeah. Where you're like, okay, we're going to tweak a script or a sales script or the way we inventory products. And then you can actually see it. It's, you know, that kind of, we need to change course, but if you don't know what course you're on, it's kind of just an exercise in futility sometimes. Mm -hmm. Well, for sure. And I think that, you know, like my emphasis has always been on the customer. And I think that you really need to focus on building systems and building uh, standard operating procedures around what the customer will like, because if they like an individual, they'll go back to find that one person. Yes. But how do you get, how do you, we're still humans who want to connect with other humans. Exactly. But how do you retain that customer after that individual moves on? Right. And so you have to create an environment. Which in retail is challenging because they will typically like by just the nature of the beast, they will move on. For Mm -hmm. sure. And so, you know, one of the things that Popeye's was great about, and I learned a lot about, uh, there was really focusing on the customer, focusing on education, and really being transparent and open in, in how you're educating the customer. So letting them know what the differences are between products, you know, and really kind of asking, you know, we call them uh, interview questions, but mm-hmm. really kind of trying to probe to see what people are really looking for. And then, because someone may come in with a little bit of information, but just through talking to them, you may realize that they don't even know about these other products that will really help them to accomplish their goal. And so very similar to that uh, at Popeye's, I find in the cannabis industry, a lot of people, if you just have a conversation with them about what their normal lifestyle is like, they may tell you things uh, that they haven't themselves noticed, and you may be able right. to recommend a great product that they weren't even thinking of. Well, and such an arguably, I think supplement industry is a great, like, it sounds like it really was the best training ground to kind of go into that. Because again, being in the background of health and fitness, people want results. They read a little, an article, they read something, they come in, I want protein, I want a fat burner. They don't really know. They just yeah. know they want something and they, they, you know, you gotta, you have to pull it out of them a little bit. And it's an interesting industry because it's so prevalent, but yet so many people know so little about what the products are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, like you said, there's no, there's an endless amount of information online, but nobody knows what the source of truth, you know, we called it bro science when I was working there, <laughs> right? Anybody, anybody who's done, you know, a competition or anyone who's, you know, read enough articles can just kind of start a YouTube channel and start 
telling you their opinion. Bro size. That's good. I like that. Yeah. I can picture, I can already picture the channels you're talking about. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There's lots of that out there. So. <laughs> and I mean, very similarly, I mean, I think, you know, when, when you talk to people about the cannabis industry pre-legalization, you know, a lot of people talk about their dealer throwing out ridiculous names like alien zombie and, you know, yes. all these things trying to sell you a product. Uh, and that's what a lot of people are doing is trying to sell you products specifically in the supplement industry as well. So destigmatizing, you know, those, the products uh, in any industry and just kind of making it really about the facts. You know, what does the product do and how is it going to help you? Uh, really helps to educate the customer and kind of put the focus back on them. Hmm. It's, it's, yeah, I've never really drawn the parallel between the supplement space and that, but it's like, it's, it's as close as probably as any that I can think of right now in terms of like what that industry from a customer perspective, back to, back to the customer. Yeah, for sure. And, and that's really one of the hmm. things. So, so when I joined Wesley, if I originally joined as a director of retail operations, and really it was, you know, working really closely with our chief commercial, commercial officer, Adam Coates, um, to basically turn a PowerPoint deck into a retail store. Okay. Uh, so it was really cool. There's some amazing ideas that, uh, that I inherited from, uh, from the team that they had already kind of thought of. And it was really cool kind of getting to bring that to life, working with a great design team um, and building that out, and then kind of building all the standards for how we were going to train, um, you know, how we were going to train our staff to talk to the customers, how we we're going to train them about the product, and then how we're going to kind of continuously motivate them to not only be selling, but to be, you know, good representatives and advocates for the brand. Right. Interesting. So you, so it was a transition. You were definitely on the front line side of looking on how we're operationalize this. For now, you've moved more. So your title is now retail development. Yeah. So, so oh, I, okay, okay. So I, was, I, I was curious, so like, because it sounds so much like you're going to be the guy who's going to be right there stewarding the customer experience. Yeah. So it was, it was a seamless transition for me. I basically at Popeyes, I, I designed, built, uh, and operationalized stores, and then managed the operations. When I joined Westleaf, that was going to be the same role: design, build, manage the operations. Um, in early in January, we did an acquisition at Westleaf, and we actually purchased uh, Candera, okay. which was another pure play retailer that had a, a large portfolio of real estate. And so, you know, with you know ambitious plans of building you know thirty to fifty stores over a two year period, we really kind of had to to bulk up the team. Uh, I like to say that I can do a lot, but. That's that's more than enough for for myself. We can row the boat a lot faster when there's other people on, exactly. the, on the oars with us. Yeah, and 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 we you know we already had a great team, so it was like how do we how do we bring more people on here so that we can kind of continue to push forward and keep that momentum going. Right. Uh, and so I had uh, how big's the team at Westleaf? Uh, I think we're about thirty corporate employees. Okay. Yeah. Um, nice. That's a solid. That's one of those. That's one of those sizes I find where you can still do big. You can do big work, but everybody still knows pseudo what everybody's going. Like you still have a lot of connection at thirty people. Yeah. Yeah, and so uh, we we had another person join the the retail team, a close friend of mine, actually Warren Matzel. Um, he's a, actually an entrepreneur here from in Calgary, and so him and I, uh, being friends, but also you know understanding how each other works, mm-hmm. having kind of an entrepreneurial background, uh, really easy for us to just kind of start uh, putting the head down and just start working. So I shifted over to development just to kind of uh, silo design and construction and kind of make sure that we had set those standards that we could kind of continue to innovate on going forward. And then Warren stepped in to kind of, you know, he'd done a great job building a, a really good team uh, at the YYC Cycles and YG Cycles oh, in nice. Alberta. Yep. Yeah, and so just so oh, I think I met him in passing at, at an e, at an EO event or something actually. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, small world, small town Calgary, very small town. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so so he he kind of stepped in to to run the operation. So basically, the way we look at it is, I look I basically handle um, you know sourcing locations, design, construction, and licensing, mm-hmm. and then I basically hand worn the keys and and he runs them. That sounds that sounds like a great yeah. Everybody stays in their lane, but then everybody knows what the other yeah. guy's thinking. Yeah, and I mean we're we're very collaborative as a team. You know, just because I'm on development and he's in operations doesn't mean that we're not talking all the time. Because well, I'm so you guys are always learning. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like you know, what's it's always the joke. What's your best project? Well, my next one because I haven't. I'm going to learn things from this project that I don't know yet. Oh yeah, for sure. We we do especially in the cannabis business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We make sure that we do a full. Uh, you know, we, we, we delve deep into every project after it's finished uh, to basically tear everything apart. You know, what did we the like? The lessons learned, like? post-mortem, what yeah, you want to yeah. so critical. It's so easy not to do when you're busy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you, you really have to make time for it. I mean, this yeah. industry is moving so fast that, you know, everything's go, go, go. You have to make sure that you schedule that, you know, that hour, those couple hours, those couple days to really kind of take a look back at what you've done. Not only to make sure that you're improving for the future, but I think also just celebrating the wins. Ugh, yes. Another thing that's easy to overlook. Yeah. I get, I'm, a, I'm guilty of getting caught up in what we need to do better and forgetting that we did that one thing really, really well. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, good, good lesson. Thank you. I'll make a note. <laughs> um, so curious when you're at Popeye's and I think this is always relevant for people because so many people get on a track, like seven years in one, six and a half, seven years at Popeye's, that's a long time. Was there a big, was there a moment that you're like, okay, I need to do something different or was it just that, that, that slowly, but then all of a sudden kind of transition bug that got you? 
Uh, I'd, I'd say it was a mix of both. Uh, I, I had amazing partners when I was there. And, you know, we had kind of sat down, I'd say we probably sat down in my third year and basically made a five-year plan for, oh, no. for the stores that we oh, wanted to open smart. Yeah, that's and, good to and what we wanted to do. Um, and so really, the next, the next four, four or five years just became about execution, right? So we, we had a plan, we were sticking to it. So really, you know, formulating a strategy and then planning out how to, how to execute on that. Um, it was a really good kind of lesson in business for myself. Um, but once we started to get to the end of that, you know, I just had an honest conversation of saying, okay, we set these goals, we accomplish them. What do you see next? Um, and, and what do you see next for me? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we were able to have a conversation about, you know, what I wanted and what I wanted to get out of the business and ultimately came to the decision that uh, it, it might be time for me to move on. Uh, and, and there's nothing bad about that, right? Yeah. The, uh, the way I look at it is you have multiple careers uh, over the course of your life, right? And you yes. got to take everything you can from them. Um, so we basically made, uh, made a one-year transition plan. And so I was doing, I was doing a lot of the operations and, and handling a lot. So we basically, we set a timeline. You know, we were, we actually were in, um, we went down to San Francisco for HustleCon. Mm-hmm. Like I said, big, big tech guy, like entrepreneurship. And so we went down there and said, okay, why don't we come back here a year from now? And that'll probably be like the goodbye, the farewell tour, we called it. So we'll spend a year getting the business to the point where I can step away. I like the farewell tour. Yeah. And then, yeah, they didn't do the farewell tour. Um, Thank you, San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so spent a, spent a year uh, kind of working to, because a lot of, one of the things about small business, uh, as opposed to, to, you know, corporate business, is that you don't necessarily write everything down. So you don't necessarily write down all your standard operating procedures for everything that you do. No, there's a, a lot, lot of intellectual capital that floats around. Yeah, exactly. You're 100% right. Yeah, so we really just uh, just basically spent a year trying to put pen to paper and trying to, to make sure that we could, me and myself, trying to make sure that I could train people to do all of the things that I was doing, but also that they would be able to train the people behind them. So really kind of turning that into a well-oiled machine. And we did a great job. And basically by the end of it, I was... Uh, I was still working, but I was at a very high level where I was able to step away from the day to day, and it was a seamless transition. Which, whether you were leaving, like officially leaving at the end, or if you were staying, that like it's that whole like train the guy behind you model. Yeah. So you know, a fantastic you know example. I think that all business owners, small, medium, or large, can learn about you know how do you build your how you're constantly building your succession plan. <laughs> yep. No, yeah, that sounds like a solid. Well, and kudos to them for being an organization that you know. I like to hear that we put a five-year plan and we executed it, and we got to the end, and we and we and we reassessed. It's I always love to hear when organizations because it's again we all know we should do it, but it's an easy thing to get pushed aside and you get busy, and you know it gets to the corner of the desk. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, so again, you you literally woke up, you you went to bed one night. I'm taking the summer off. You woke up on the Monday. I'm in the cannabis. I'm in the cannabis business. Yeah. <laughs> how and I know from friends that are in it. Like how's how's the I understand it's a bit of a roller coaster of this, that, uh, what's legal, what's not, what's getting yeah. approval. How has that been? <laughs> uh, I can tell you, like on, on the regulatory side, it's been, it's been challenging at times because everyone wants to cast a really broad net. I mean, right. specifically Health Canada, when they put the regulations about, you know, marketing, what you can say, what you can do, yes. it leaves it very open to interpretation. Uh, but then they expect the provinces to basically enforce the federal rules. And so, one of the things that we've been really good about is, you know, we acknowledge right from the beginning that, you know, if you step out of bounds, you're going to be made example of because this is a brand new industry. And so we've been really good about working with the regulators and really asking the questions to make sure that we're on side with what we're doing. Um, and I think it's really allowed us to understand the regulations, um, you know, specifically around around marketing and, and how we operate. Um, the biggest challenge I would say has been through the regulatory framework around the retail stores. Right, obviously, like retail was our main focus, just because our other assets are are still under construction. Um, but when you look at the retail stores, I mean, Alberta AGLC had their moratorium. Ontario government basically went from uh, public, or sorry, from yeah, from public to private to small batch to lottery. Like, yes. so many different changes. And so, operating in all those provinces and dealing with all the different regulations, I've actually had a lot of insight into you know what I would consider you know highly successful. Look at Saskatchewan and their free market approach. Okay, uh, it's a, it allows you to operate freely. Obviously, there's if, you, some, if you look at it nationally, would you say like is it Saskatchewan is one of the leaders in terms of the way they handled it? Not I would to call say, anybody out good or bad, but yeah. just what's your observation? I, I would say in, in in the way that uh, in the way that businesses are able to operate there for sure. Okay, um, they did the lottery approach as well for. Uh, okay, for, they did. Okay, yeah, they did what, the lottery yeah. approach for for basically getting permits, which gave you the option to basically to build a store and then get it licensed. Um, so you can't actually have any other stores in there other than like M and A activity until I believe 2021. Okay, so they kind of they brought out the how many how many stores in Saskatchewan? 
Uh, I believe there was 50, 51 or 52. Okay, and that's locked until... That's locked until you can, Those stores can move around inside different ownership groups. Yeah. So someone could build it and then sell it. Yeah. But you're not opening any net new stores. Yeah, no net new stores. Basically, oh, they okay. went out to the they went out to the different municipalities throughout Saskatchewan and said, "Okay, do you want cannabis? Yes or no?" And then if you did, uh, they kind of figured out what the right number of stores were. Okay, so the municipalities could opt in or opt out. Yep. Okay. Yeah, and then they then they basically you know did a lottery for for those locations. People were awarded in lottery. We won a location in Warman, uh, and then uh, through the acquisition of Candero, acquired the Saskatoon locations. Okay. And then basically said, okay, you have three years to operate and for, and to kind of get this industry built and then they're going to reassess. Um, so, and that's not even just at the provincial level, but also at the municipal, municipal level too. Um, I had sat down with some of the, uh, some of the people that work in the municipality of Saskatoon and mm-hmm. talked to them about their business licensing process and what they've seen. Cause a lot of municipalities didn't really get to do a proper industry consultation. Because it was just so fast. And the industry didn't even exist. Yeah. They were really <laughs> who, are we consult, who are we going to consult with? Yeah, exactly. So they're kind of doing it retroactively where, you know, now that it exists, let's go out to industry, let's talk to them, let's see, you know, what's actually happening. And now let's start to adjust the regulations. Because like I said, everyone cast a wide net because they didn't want to put themselves in a bad position. Yeah. So now, okay, how do we, how do we scale back some of the regulations to make it so that the businesses can operate successfully? Interesting. Where's that, where does, uh, where's Alberta kind of fallen into that mix in terms of how they, how quote unquote, they've done it? Mm. Um, well, on, uh, on the licensing side for individual locations, obviously they put the moratorium in place to allow them to, uh, to fix the supply chain. So they were, how many stores were open when they did that? Uh, I believe the count was around 60 when they put, okay, the that's moratorium what I thought it was place. between 60 and 70. I yeah. can't remember. Okay. Yeah. And they put the moratorium in place around 60 and then, you know, now basically to balance out the, the supply problem, correct? Yeah, basically. So the way that Alberta does it is they basically, the AGLC, very similar to liquor, the AGLC is the sole wholesaler for cannabis product. Yes. And so... Yeah, so no matter where your retail location is, that's who you're... No matter supplies, where you are in Alberta, you have that's one, where it's You have from. one supplier. Yeah, you have one supplier. And then all the licensed producers will then basically distribute into that environment. They warehouse it all, and then it goes out from there. So, yeah, okay. yeah, licensed producers will go out and they'll get supply agreements with the province, and then the province will basically take the product in, uh, and then the province does uh, weekly allocation forms to the retailers where the, they'll say, okay, here's how much supply we have. Sometimes yeah. they can guarantee products, sometimes they can't. Um, I've heard it's still hit and miss or you go to your local store and they maybe don't have this product, but then it'll be in stock next yeah. week. Like, there still and, is a bit of a, and it's, it's not unlike what you'd find in traditional retailers or traditional retail, you know, products get back ordered, you know, things yes. supply, they run out of stuff. Yeah, supply shortages happen. Uh, and so you just try and pivot to something else. The thing is that, you know, when there's supply shortages happening all over the country, it makes it really hard to get consistent product. Right. And so that's really why they put the moratorium in place. But from what I've heard, you know, the supply shortage is getting a lot, a lot better. And so they're able to open up the licensing. And so that's where, you know, our Alberta store comes in. I think we were in, you know, the, the 230 to 250th store. Okay. Um, so obviously Alberta accelerated that growth really quickly because they had a big backlog, but now they're kind of opening it up, opening up the licensing um, because they feel like they can adequately, um, meet the needs for the supply. And you know, when do you get that balance of when the supply and demand curve actually starts to control it? Saying, you know what, we've got enough stores, like we don't need any more, and it starts to, to cannibalize on the whole market. Well, and, and that's, and that's one, so hard to tell because it's still growing so fast. Well, and that's the one thing that I think that the, the, the provinces don't necessarily want to do. Like when, when you did a lottery system in Saskatchewan and what they're doing in Ontario right now, they really restricted the number of locations so they could let the market establish itself. And it Whereas Alberta is not restricting the number of locations. Mm. They're really just trying to control the supply which allows uh, free market in the sense of people are allowed to, to, to succeed and they're also allowed to fail. Right. Um, that's think, a nice way to put it. You're, I, yeah. Right. And I think, I think that that's really how it needs to be. You need to be able to open stores and people need to understand that not every business that you open is going to be successful. Um, but if you look to Colorado, um, where you can see what a mature market looks like, very similar. Right? A lot of stores come up um, and then what ha- ends up happening is that as the, as the demand increases, um, because all these stores are opening and everything's happening, then supply increases, but then once supply increases, then the prices start to come down. Yes. So one of the big complaints about the the legal cannabis industry is, you know, the, the pricing for retail. A lot of people say you can't compete with the black market, and the whole point of legalization was to compete with the black market. Yeah, to, well, to eliminate it. Eliminate arguably. it, ultimately. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, you know, the, one of the challenges is the supply really needs to exceed the demand in order for the pricing to start to come down, so that can happen. So it balances out from the consumer's perspective. You're exactly. Right. Hmm. Yeah, so we're we're still early days, That's obviously, yeah. and over the next few years, I think we're really going to see the prices come down, especially as derivative products come online and there's there's more supply of different products. Because it was last October, right? We're not even we're not oh, even, yeah. we're not even a year. We're not even a year it's in. We don't a, even it's such we don't a even have the full industry. suite of products. So interesting. Such early yeah, such early days. 
Um, what about Ontario? I've heard it's a, I've heard it's been a bit of a roller coaster. Did you guys jump into? Did you, sorry, did you guys strategically move to the Ontario market when they because they kind of told one story and then they pivoted to, yeah. from this lottery because that's what my okay Ontario is going to be great. Let's go secure a bunch of locations and all of a sudden left hook. <laughs> yeah, so originally it was going to be you know government owned stores, right? They're going to have the the OCS, the Ontario Cannabis Store, like they do online, but they're going to have brick and mortar. Um, and then that's right. They were going to control it. Like, yeah. like the LCBO. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the, then the conservative government effectively changed and said that it was going to be private retail. Um, and then in, I believe it was November of this, this past year, they said, okay, it's going to be privatized retail, but we're only going to release 25 licenses and we're going to do it by lottery. And so they, you were able to go in and basically apply to get a license. I think they had something like 17,000 applicants. I, that's the number I heard was 17, yeah. yeah. 17,000 applicants. And it was literally like anybody could apply. There was really the no... The barriers to entry were so low. I think yeah. it was like $200, if that. Yeah. Um, and so they did that. And basically, those are all the stores that are going to be operational until, I believe they said December. Um, but yeah, then... Yeah, the end of this year. Yeah, to the, to the end of this year. And then they, they switched and said, okay, we're going to do another lottery. And so... They just had mm. the last uh, submission actually last week from August 7th to 9th. Okay. Did they change the, the criteria? Was it as much of a, just an they open They changed call? the criteria. So this okay. one you needed to basically show, you had to show source of funds. So you had to show that you had capital. Did you have money to do it? Yeah. Okay. You also had to get a, a letter of credit from a bank to the Ontario government so that they could kind of make sure they secured their money as they did in the first round. Um, there were some penalties for not opening on time. They yes. wanted to make sure that stores were able to open, so they really they kind of set some that. people up for failure there. They let anybody enter, but then put it was a fairly tight timeline, wasn't it? Like Very a couple tight. months. Like yeah, I think they they drew they drew the names in January. They expected people to be open in April. That's right. And so it January wasn't even like, it wasn't even three full months um, from start to finish. Uh, and I mean, if you hadn't if you didn't have your design set. To design and build a retail store in less than ninety days is a very tight timeline. Typical. Well, you've been in that world. What, what, what's what is an ideal timeline to like f- do it quickly because time is of the essence, yeah. but to do it well, what would it typically take? What would you budget? I'd say ninety to one hundred and twenty days, depending on how intricate your design is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the lead time. If you're all, going in with a plan. <laughs> if you're going in with a plan, I mean, you can you can start a brand new design from scratch at one hundred and twenty days and still be confident that you could deliver. Okay. Uh, you know, a, a fully finished store at the end of that. Um, because you know, so that's hustling though. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. You're, you're really going to have to be making decisions quickly. There isn't any time. And and if you don't have a team in place of contractors and like, like who's going to do, someone's got to do the work still. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. You, you really need to assemble a great team. That's one of the things that we've been really lucky about actually is having a really good team that's worked with us through the entire design build process to help us can continuously iterate on our design. Uh, that's which is again like we talked about, you're only as good as you're only as good as your team. Yeah. So, so you said last week, so when's the. When are they announcing? Like, what's I'm just I'm curious because Ontario is such a big market. We have an office in Ontario, so I'm in yeah. that market. So you hear grumblings. It's definitely not as much as I've heard here, just because I think I just know more people that are in the sector in Alberta. But in Ontario, it just feels like everyone's like frustrated. Again, I've heard a lot of negative things. About oh yeah, process. like well, you know, I said one of the requirements from this time around was that uh, there was a letter of credit that was needed from a bank. Uh, Ontario actually got to the point where Ontario banks were saying, "No, we're not going to issue any more letters." Like they got tired really? of, of the demand. They didn't want to deal with it. Yeah. So there's some like, you know, towards the end, there were some challenges for people just to get the requirements to be able to apply. Not that they didn't have the requirements, right? but they had to jump through hoops to get it. To get the piece of paper. Yeah. Yeah. Banks were saying no. Credit unions were saying no. Like it was, it was a big issue. So we kind of let everybody in the first round and then the second round, we might've actually kept some legitimate operators out because of the process. Truthfully. Hmm, that seems a bit silly, but yeah. anyways. So, so, yeah. so the next draw. Talk about customer experience and removing friction. Oh yeah. No, was, or, I think or, or building it into the process. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think the, the next draw for Ontario, so the applications went in last week, they'll announce the, uh, the winners next week. Okay. Um, oh, so then, pretty quick turnaround. Yeah. It's going to be very quick. Yeah. And what's the timeline? Did, did you have to have a store open? Did they put, is, is that in there the same as last time? Not, not to this, not to the same restriction. I think okay. they're, they're kind of waiting to see what, what shakes out of it, but just wait and see. <laughs> yeah. Just wait and see. One of the things that they, that Ontario has done, uh, is they basically made it so that licensed producers can only own 9.9% of a retail store. Okay, I did hear that. Yeah, so so for us being, you know, we aren't licensed yet, but we're in the process of, of trying to get licensed as we get our uh, facilities built out. Oh, wait, does that, yeah, does that make an inherent challenge for you guys? Yeah, so it's, we can't, we can't uh, own 100% of the asset, but what it opens up is it opens up the opportunities for, for partnerships. Yes. Right, so we have, we have some... Joint ventures, like joint ventures, quality yeah. relationships. Yeah, so we have some really good relationships with, uh, with people that are, are already uh, really successful in Ontario. And so we've been able to uh, position ourselves um, to, to have some great partnerships and open up some Prairie Records retail stores with them. That's awesome. In Ontario. Yeah. Is your guys plan eventually to have retail locations across Canada? Ultimately, that's what we'd like. Yeah, we're really yes. focused on Western Canada right now, but obviously Ontario being the biggest market in Canada, we want to make it sure is. that we're a part of that. 
Um, but yeah, end goal I'd say would be to ultimately have retail across Canada. Awesome. What's going on in BC? Because BC, you know, I grew up hearing about BC yeah. Bud, and you know, but I've also heard they've been it's been challenging there, and it just hasn't gone as smoothly as it has in Alberta, just as a comparison. I think BC, I think one of the reasons it hasn't gone as smoothly in BC is because Alberta took a hard stance that if you were part of the gray market, uh, basically if you were a part of pseudo legal cannabis before legalization, right. you couldn't be involved at all. And that really made I remember it easy. hearing that. Then that a lot of the guys that got in early really got kind of screwed by that. Yeah, and so so yeah. that really made it easy in Alberta because it was basically very clear cut. Either you're in or out. Um, in BC, you know, they also what they wanted to do was they wanted to really kind of respect the industry that already existed and kind of the people that had started it. So depending on the municipality, there were some people that got grandfathered in, uh, were able to apply. There's some people that mm. you know you could close down and then apply by a certain date. And ultimately, there's some people that are still operating you know illegally. Um, and just decided that that's the way they want to do it. So the it's interesting, all those little pockets. What did I hear? In, was it in Ontario last week or two weeks ago that they literally put cement barricades in front of people's stores, but then they yeah. just got other contractors to come and take them away? And it just seemed kind of ridiculous overall. Yeah, I remember reading You're either that. It's either legal or it's not. And if it's not, then you have the means as a as provincially or municipality to, to deal with that. Well, and, and, and being a part of the legal market, we really want municipalities to enforce that. We want it to be enforceable because... Because you're playing by the rules. We're, we're yeah. playing by the rules and we go through you know, a very lengthy application process and we go through a lot of verification. Like, and spend you know, there's, a lot of costs There's, there's police background checks and financial background checks in every province for every people that are you know, at the manager level and above. Right. Um, and so for us to be going through all of that but for uh, you know, a gray market dispensary to still be open down the street uh, with no regulation, getting black market process. product with lower wholesale prices, like you just can't compete. And you know, like we said, we talked about the supply and demand and how we're really, the recreational market has a little ways to go before we can compete with the yes. illegal market. And so I think that it's really up to the municipalities and ultimately the provinces to start enforcing that on those, black, or on those gray market dispensaries. It is frustrating when you're playing by the rules, yeah. but that is also part of the wild west of the cannabis, oh, yeah. the cannabis yeah. industry. For sure. And um, I mean, you look at everything that existed prior to October, um, you know, especially in BC, you know, there's, you know, there's licensed producers, there's extractors, there's tons of different products. You can still order product online. Um, so it's, it's going to take a while to kind of curb that, but we think that the legal market will out in the long run. Uh, yeah. And again, back to the fact that we're not even 12 months yet yeah. from, you know what I mean? If you look at it from when, like October, was it October 17th? Is that yeah. what it was the date? Yeah, October 17th, 2018. Yeah. So literally it's so funny to, it feels like it's been around forever and you know, there's a little bit of a mindset of like, well, it shouldn't have taken us this long because why, like it's just, it felt to me as someone who grew up around it going, ah, no big deal. But for so many people, it still is a, a big, like, you know, talking to my dad, it's still like, whoa, it, it's still hard for his brain to get wrapped around it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so looking back on your, on your own journey, any thoughts, any words of advice or, you know, part of, part of they just get it is to share people's stories. And I love yours cause it is a meandering path. like similar to mine. I look back and it kind of makes sense in hindsight, but really when I was looking for it, I didn't know where it was, where it was going to end up sitting in this chair, doing this thing, talking to you today. Yeah. Any thoughts for people that are maybe in a position where they've got, you know, we sometimes we get that niggly feeling of like, ah, you know what, I need change. I need anything that was pinnacle for you. Was it mentors or like anything that helped you through some of that transition? Yeah, I'd, I'd say that, you know, the biggest thing through the transition for me was really just reaching out to people and just developing relationships. I think that, you know, one of the things that people always hear about is, is what networking is, but people don't actually understand what it takes. And it's really just about having, you know, open and honest communication, learning from people without really having any expectation of receiving something. Um, so it's a lot to be said with not having an agenda. Yeah. Not yeah. trying to, not trying to sell something. Essentially. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people think about networking is networking for a job. So it's like, okay, I want a job. I need to go out and find people that can offer me something. Um, but really, you know, for me, you know, I, I had some connections in, in the cannabis industry as I was able to get in, but I, I didn't circle searching those connections. I went out searching information about what they were doing and to learn. You didn't go looking for a job. I didn't go looking for a job. You didn't I went, go look for a, what's in it for me. Yeah. Story. No, I just, I just went to try and, you know, broaden my horizons and try and learn a little bit about stuff that was outside of my, my sphere of, of influence and what I was doing. Uh, and in doing that, I was able to, you know, create some genuine connection with people. And, you know, once they started to learn a little bit about me and, and what I liked and what I like to do for work, it really opened up some opportunities because, you know, I had retail skills and there was retail developing and ultimately just, it just worked out. I think it's a really good piece of advice. You know, 
I, you think of networking sometimes, you're like, okay, I'm going to go to some awkward event, I'm going to know people, I'm going to hand out business cards, versus, no, I'm going to go fun, learn about something, I'm going to go to a startup Calgary event, I'm going to go to a breakfast event, and because I'm curious about something, and then you meet like-minded people, that's a very different formula for networking that, to me, sounds a lot less intimidating than the cocktail business card handout kind of thing that nobody, very few people I know like that. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And I, I mean, I think that one of the things I've, I would always uh, suggest that people do is is talk to people that that you know that are your friends that may not be able to help you, but maybe they can bring you along and just being with that person will make it less stressful. And maybe they can introduce you to someone that, you know, two or three connections away will ultimately lead to something good. Yes. Which I find, and I know not being from Calgary, moving here, Calgary does have that big small town vibe where like, and I also find that there is, because we've had such a sense of abundance here, I've always felt that there was very much not a, not a scarcity mindset, but like, oh, hey, yeah, I can do, I can be successful, but so can you. Like, here, I can, you know, I know yeah. someone, or let me help you out. Or, I've just found that Calgary, you know, and then there's other places like that. I can speak to Calgary because I've, I, I still, I'm from somewhere else. So when it hit me when I got here, I'm like, wow, this is the biggest small town I've ever lived in, and legitimately, people are helpful here. Very helpful, yeah. No, oh, and it's interesting. Any, um, you mentioned earlier when we were talking a little bit offline around different events or things that are going on in Calgary, whether it's Startup Calgary. Is there anything that you can, you know, now that you're focused in the cannabis industry, but I know you mentioned you're a little bit of a tech guy, you love tech. Is there any things that you go to or events that you want to call out get, that we can give a little airtime to that people should check out if they're curious? Um, well, yeah, like tech is a, is a passion for me and I try to go as, to as many of the entrepreneurship events that happen around Calgary. Startup Calgary has some great ones. Um, there's also... Um, like the accelerator incubators that happen in Calgary. I think, I think anytime you get the ability to go and see some of these startups in Calgary showcase what they've been doing, uh, it, it's just, it's just great. It's great to celebrate the wins for them and great to see kind of, you know, how thriving the, uh, the entrepreneurship kind of innovation ecosystem in Calgary really is. Uh, I think the, the university of Calgary is doing some really good things with the creative destruction lab. We talked about yes. that. Um, and yeah, I've talked to a few people like that sounds like an amazing program and you had a really unique opportunity to kind of get involved in that when you were doing your, your MBA sounds like a big networking event. It sounds great. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really great. I got the ability or sorry, got the opportunity to, um, to participate in the first cohort for CDL Rockies. And in doing that, I met, I met some great entrepreneurs from the city of Calgary that were supporting the program. Uh, I met some great, you know, investors that had kind of come together to, to help fund and finance some of the, the programs that, or companies that came out of that program. And then just being involved, working, you know, really closely with startups, getting to understand what it's like for startup life, right? Being scrappy, wearing tons of different hats and really just doing whatever it takes to get the job done. Resourceful, adaptable. Oh, yeah. I had Ray DePaul on from uh, on Collisions from uh, Mount Royal and he said, he made a statement that kind of blew me away. He goes, when I'm sitting with a 20-year-old, I, I tell them openly that you're going to change careers six to seven times in your life. So yeah. if you think about your skills, you think about adaptability, resourcefulness, and curiosity, all the rest you're going to have to learn anyways, but let's work on those three. It was just, it was so, I'm like, the six to seven times blew me away, yeah. but the adaptable, curious, and resourceful, like I was like, yeah, that, that's the, those, are the, those are the characteristics you really need to excel in, in, the, in the environment that we're in. It's ever-changing faster than ever, you would be argued. For sure, and I mean, if, if there's anyone listening who would be looking to get into that kind of like startup space, uh, the one thing that I would say would just be like, you know, know what your skills are and, and try and offer them up and take on whatever you can, right? Just constantly be trying to say add yes. value. Say yes. yes. Say yes. Yes, I love what you said. Be constantly trying to add the, the discipline it takes to add value and seeing yeah. what that value is. Hey, Chris, I'm going to dig in on a question because it's something I've had conversations with people before. Um, you did your MBA. Did you do it full time or part time? Part time. MBA, yes, no, best thing you ever did. Uh, like I've had such mixed res like mixed feedback on this on this conversation. People are like absolutely do your MBA. Like ah, you know what? It was good, but maybe you could find something somewhere else. What's your view on on doing an MBA? Mm. Um, so when I did my MBA, I actually mentioned this offline was that I I really tried to be a part of as many events as I could. Um, I think that doing it part time versus doing it full time, there's a a big difference in terms of the exposure you get to kind of okay. what's happening at the university. Uh, I've met. You know, I had some engineers in my cohort that were basically doing it part-time just to get the letters. And so they would come to the classes, but they wouldn't actually do anything outside of that. And I think that... Which for you was one of the, the biggest upside was the other for, was for everything me, else. For me, it was all about the people, all about the relationships uh, getting in there. I mean, I came, I had a business undergrad, so a lot of the foundational mm, okay. uh, you know, lessons that were being taught in the classes, I already understood. And so the classes weren't difficult for me. Um, but, you know, meeting people... Uh, networking with them, and then also just, you know, being at the University of Calgary, there's a lot of events that they have uh, that you don't really get access to unless you're a student. And so, you know, diving into the whole uh, university experience headfirst really helped me. And I think that, you know, for anybody who's looking to kind of learn about what's out there and potentially break into new industries, it's a great way to do it. 
That's very good advice. I love the networking piece. And I think that's the part that sometimes doesn't get called out in the brochure to the same degree. Oh, you're going to learn this and it's going to be this great experience. But I've heard it from people like, wow, like I, I've done friends have done international MBAs and like now they have friends all over the world. Like it just expands your network at a depth, like cause almost like, um, shared trials and tribulations bring people together as well, which yeah. I know an MBA is some of that. For sure. And I think that, you know, ultimately when you think about what an MBA is, you know, it's a university education. So you're looking at like the theoretical uh, components yes. of business, but you know, the practical is really what stands out in like the real world and experience. So an MBA may get you into an interview that you might not have otherwise had, but you know, you really need to be able to develop those skills. And so sometimes that's through the projects you're doing. Sometimes it's through, you know, the extracurricular stuff that you're doing in the university. Right. But how do you take the theory and make it as real as you can? So yeah. when you get out onto the, when you get out, onto, out into the corners, you can go, Oh yeah. Okay. I felt this before. I've seen this before. I know what this is like. Yeah. And I mean, one of the biggest things about an MBA is you learn to, you learn to problem solve, you learn to think critically and you basically learn, you know, how to manage situations. You look at, you know, management consulting and taking, going, coming into a business from the outside and taking, you know, a high level view at what needs to be done and solving problems. A lot of that comes through, you know, having conversations with people that are in industries outside of yourself. And you can start doing that in the MBA and then you can take that into your career. Yeah. Where you get, where you get all those different perspectives. Cause yeah. again, at the core, it's still business, but you're yeah. right. You can learn something from an unrelated business and go, ah, this feels similar. I'm going to bring it in. Um, you mentioned that you've, you've done Mount Royal and you've done UFC. Yep. Thoughts on just the difference of so this is other. So I'm really getting pointed on my questions today. Um, both great organizations that provide something I think different in our city. Yep. What was your experience between the two? Just for anyone, again, for anyone who's listening. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually did Mount Royal the exact same way as I did, uh, did UFC. I, I was part-time. I've, I did my entire post-secondary education part-time while I was working uh, full-time. So doing the evening classes, but I found that, you know, the smaller class size of Mount Royal and the accessibility of professors really made it easy to get questions answered Okay, uh, and made it really easy to, to learn. Um, I also found that, you know, working in Mount Royal, the, or in my experience, Mount Royal to UFC, the experience, uh, obviously grad school is different than undergrad, but the experience right. of the people around me, Mount Royal, it was very much, um, very much people that were, that were still kind of learning and still coming. I was a little bit older, so I had some more experience from the real world. Yep. Um, but there's people from many different backgrounds going to UFC. A lot of people, um, I mean, a lot of people in the NBA were engineers inherently. Yes, because we're, because we're in Calgary. 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 Yeah. Calgary. yeah. Um, but yeah, the, I think that uh, the similarities would be very similar in terms of like the instructional style, style and the skills that are given. Um, but just the smaller class sizes and the ability to kind of, you know, concentrate on smaller groups makes it easier to learn. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've, I've talked to Cal, I've, I've done mentorship and speaking at both. And I, I found just my own experience at Mount Royal, there was a, just a level of practicality and mm-hmm. there was a level of really, it was more pragmatic where I definitely felt it was a bit more academic at, at, at UFC, just different again, not good nor bad, but there was a little bit of a different bent in terms of maybe, and also it was just maybe who I met at the time and who I was talking to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that actually, so one of the similarities that I think um, was in, I actually, I took the business plan class at Mount Royal when I was doing my undergrad. Okay. And then I actually, uh, I volunteered um, in the business plan class for uh, UFC undergrads uh, after, most recently, I think about two years ago I was in there. Okay. And so uh, in the UFC undergrads, they were all learning uh, very similar things, trying to, but trying to create a business plan for how to build like a big corporation. Whereas Mount Royal is more focused on small business. Ah, interesting. Okay. And so like, so it, more, more at the at street, the street level. Yeah. Mount Royal was really street level. It was like practical. Like you were going out there and you were, you know, you were conducting interviews with businesses close to a location to see where you want it to be and using that to kind of help, uh, you know, put the information kind of like justify what you were going to be doing. Yep. And then, you know, UFC didn't really kind of have that same level. So I'm not saying that they don't have it in other, no, in other but that kind of speaks to a little bit what that, I that experienced as, as, as well and different. Yeah. Cause I think they both provide a really incredible value in our, in our community. And yeah. I've worked with people, I had people on my team that have come from both environments and yeah. all good. Cause again, still everyone's an individual and you take out of whatever experience you, 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 you do. So yeah, I know just curious. I'm, I'm as, as we're unfolding, I'm getting a little more pointed with my question. I'm like, Oh, Hey, this is something I've been pondering. wanted to ask you about. Yeah. Um, Insightful. So wh- what's the path? What's it look like ahead? I, I, again, how, how far do you forecast in the cannabis industry <laughs> for even your own career? Mm. Um, I mean, I, I don't see an end, but uh, the future gets very unsure the further and further you go. Yes. I think, you know, there's no roadmap. There's there, no preordained path. No, here. there's, there's no roadmap. We, we have a roadmap right now for, for building out the assets that we have. Yes. Uh, I, I just recently took over project managing our, our, um, cultivation and manufacturing facility build outs. So, oh, so, so another, and some more learning. Yeah. So some more learning, yes, yeah, some bigger projects. Um, so, you know, those, that'll take us into, into 2020. And then beyond that, you know, the different types of produced products that we're going to be doing, um, continuing to build out the retail stores, um, and just really operationalizing the business. Um, I think, 
you know, once we get to a certain point, you know, who knows what's going to be coming. M&A activity is, is a big part of our strategy. Yeah, there's going to be consolidation. There's going to be consolidation in the industry. There's yeah. going to be things that happen. Um, but for now, I'm just really excited about the prospects with, 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 with no, that, that's, no, it's exciting. It sounds like you've landed where you where you need to be right now. Yeah, it's great. Any insights on products? I know are, we, are edibles going to be coming to the market in the fall? Like, is that I've I've heard some rumors around that. I just I haven't committed to going and learning about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So effectively, the way that Health Canada had set it up was October 17, twenty eighteen, was going to be you know dried flower tinctures, capsules. Okay. And October 17, twenty nineteen, was going to be edibles and uh, vape cartridges and other derivative products. Okay, so it is literally 12 months later. It is. So the way that they're going to be doing it is they're basically going to give, on October 17, 2019, they'll give companies um, the ability to show what they're going to be producing. And then 60 days from then, they'll be able to produce them. So December, okay. middle middle December uh, is when you're going to see the products first hit the shelves. So I'd say, you know, January 2020, you should be, have access to edibles and vape cartridges. Interesting. That should, that should that just provides another level of accessibility, another level of st- changes stigma. Mm-hmm. For sure. It changes stigma. And I think, you know, we've been, we've been constantly told over the last 30 years that smoking is bad for you. Yeah, right. Totally. So, so having, taking a product that's, you know, that's combustible, like dried flour and, you know, a lot of people don't want to necessarily consume that. But when you say, okay, now you have, you know, uh, an edible that you can have, or you have like a base vape cartridge, that's a lot easier to totally to ingest. Yeah, as a health conscious individual, smoking yeah. doesn't interest me, but I'm interested in the benefits that I can experience from cannabis, but yeah. I don't want to smoke because it's just, I don't want to smoke. So this, yeah, so this <laughs> I'm gives, not, I'm a non-smoker, you know exactly. what I mean? <laughs> this gives other people to the opportunity to try the product and, and, you know, not necessarily have to worry about the negative health benefits. Which again, kind of, again, decreases the barriers to entry, reduces the friction and kind of changes people's ability to kind of try it out and see, and see if it, because it might not work for you, but, but the ability to approach it and, and not feel intimidated or, or kind of like the doors close before you even start. For sure. And I mean, looking to, looking to Colorado and, and like I said before, another mature market, they still are seeing growth year over year in, you know, candies and chocolates and vape cartridges. How many years, how long has this been legal in uh, Colorado? Uh, in Colorado, I believe it's 13 years. Is it that long? It's 13 years, years already. Yeah, since the... I would have pulled a 6-8 out of my hat. Like, yeah, I don't just... <laughs> yeah, it's, I it's find been, as I get older, I have a skewed view of past. Like, oh, that was a few years ago, Tyler. That was eight years ago. I'm like, oh, yeah, shit. It's been quite a while. We actually, we're, we're really lucky, again, with our team, but we actually have our director of cultivation and training uh, for former COO for MRD in Canada. He w- had one of the first uh, first legal retail stores in Denver. Interesting. So he yeah. has seen there, been there, has, done that. He has been there, done that. He's seen the whole thing. Uh, he's very passionate about the plant and really understands what he's doing on the cultivation side. That's awesome. I love the levels of like uh, just niche skills at each, at each level, the re- retail skill level versus the plants and the cultivation. Because ultimately it's still farming. Yeah. <laughs> whether it's wine or whether it's, you know, I grew up in Quebec, so I grew yeah. up with maple syrup and somebody produced that thing. Someone like, you know, invested in it, cared to learn about how to make it perfect, created the best environment for that. To It's easy to forget that it's still, it's still agricultural based at the end yeah. of the day. Oh yeah. No, it's, it's, it's very funny because it's, it's growing, but it's still very highly specialized. I mean, like you said, like the, the environment that it's grown in can impact the plant a lot. And that's why it's actually really interesting learning a lot about the cultivation from the team that we've put together because, you know, we're doing like, you know, what's the difference between, you know, a small room, small batch grow versus, you know, large batch grow, greenhouse, outdoor. Like there's so many differences in temperature, water, everything. So many things can impact the plant. Yeah, the nutrients, I know some guys that are getting into the soil game of how do we increase CBD content while being more natural or decreasing the need for artificial fertilizers and things like that. It's so interesting, and yeah, we don't even know where it's going to go, but working with guys that have already, you're you're not having to learn everything as you go. (laughs) You're bringing some people in, which is huge when it comes to moving a business forward. Sure, yeah, we don't have to make a lot of mistakes that were made early. We can kind of just start fresh from which is a, that's a significant value advantage right there. Definitely. So from yourself, if anyone's really curious or wants to learn more about cannabis or maybe just wants to chat with you, is there any way that uh, anyone can reach out or get a hold of you? Uh, yeah, I'd say the best way to reach out is to maybe contact me on LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm on good there. old LinkedIn. Yeah, good old LinkedIn. It's the easiest way. Send me a message. I'm, I'm pretty responsive uh, and I'm, I'm very willing to give out my email and sit down and have a coffee or chat. Fantastic. Chris, well, I would highly recommend it. This has been a great chat this morning. I appreciate learning about your story and also some of your insights around uh, this rocky uh, rocky road of the cannabis industry. Yeah, no, thanks. It's been great to be here. Awesome. Thank you, Chris. Thanks. thanks.